TED Audio Collective. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. This week, we're sharing a series called TED Connects, Community and Hope. Some very timely conversations with TED speakers around the coronavirus pandemic. This one features Gary Liu, CEO of the South China Morning Post, in a virtual conversation with head of TED Chris Anderson and current affairs curator Whitney Pennington Rogers. And we want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the series by leaving a review or emailing us at podcasts at TED.com. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Welcome to TED Connects. Um, This is a new series of live conversations um, trying to make sense of this weird moment that we're in coronavirus, everyone suddenly changing how they live their lives. It's so jolting, it's so startling. Um, we're all trying to make sense of it, and it ain't easy. Uh, that much we know. We're trying to make sense of this together um, in the way, the only way that we know how, which is by having wise humans coming on, talking to each other, listening to each other, trying to learn from each other. We are apart, but Uh, we can use this moment to build community together. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, So this is being produced by a virtual TED team scattered around New York, currently one of the epicenters really of this pandemic. Um, So it's definitely a scary time for people here. Um, I'd like to welcome to join me my co-host here, Whitney Pennington-Rogers. She's our current affairs curator. We're going to be looking a little bit at uh, China's response today when news surfaced about a strange viral outbreak in Wuhan, China, at the very last days of 2019, um, I think a lot of people were uh, confused about what was going on there. And in in the months that followed, uh, we learned more about the disease that's now known as COVID-19. We watched the situation in China quickly worsen and in the most recent weeks, dramatically improve. Um, And I think as all of us around the world grapple with how we can contain and control the spread of COVID-19, there are a lot of lessons we can learn from what China experienced and how they responded. So we're really thrilled to be joined today by the CEO of the South China Morning Post, Gary Liu, who's here to share his perspective um, and insights. So uh, welcome, Gary. Thanks for having me. Hey there, Gary. Thanks for being with us. And I think before we dive into things, I'd love to hear about just how things have been for you personally and um, your loved ones, those close to you. How have you been experiencing this? 
It's, it's complicated. Uh, so we're here in Hong Kong. I'm working from home, like uh, much of Hong Kong. I'm actually, uh, actually self-quarantined in our apartment here in Hong Kong because there was a confirmed case in our workplace. Uh, so over the course of the last week plus, and likely for at least another week plus, uh, the entire organization has been distributed and working from home. Uh, you know, when, when Hong Kong got its first confirmed case, I was actually uh, back in the United States uh, with my wife. We were taking a small break um, uh, in, in the Rockies, and uh, we came back to Hong Kong pretty soon after that uh, to, to, make sure, to, to make sure we got back into Hong Kong before the airport shut. And at that point, it was all of our family in the United States and friends texting us and worrying about how things were in Hong Kong as uh, the situation in China started escalating. And people were sending us, or trying to send us supplies, uh, masks and sanitizer and stuff like that. And now, it's the opposite. New York is our home. New York City is our home. So we certainly empathize with what you guys are uh, dealing with right now and going through in the city. And, uh, and we are seeing our friends and our family back home in New York and in California uh, and checking in on them, trying to send equipment and materials back to them. So uh, the, the, the script has flipped actually pretty fast over just the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I think that's actually a really interesting place to start and probably a question that a lot of people who aren't in China have. Uh, you know, I think from the outside looking in, it, it seems as if what's happened um, in China is kind of miraculous that uh, to go from, you know, you have a country with uh, more than a billion people there to go from as many as uh, 80,000 cases to, to, nearly, to nearly zero new cases now. Um, you know, what, what can you tell us about how this happened to help us understand the current situation and, and just really how uh, China ended up there? Yeah, a, a lot has happened. China's been dealing with this for several months now, several months head start. That's not a good thing. Uh, but they have, they have gone through several different phases. I, I think, Winnie, before I jump into it, there are a couple of caveats that are really important to make. The first one is that we're still parsing what happened in China. Uh, the, the, the information system, as everyone knows, is still relatively closed. And so a lot of the information that, that we're using to piece together what happened in China is still uh, not fully complete. And so with every passing day, every passing week, there's more information that allows us to retroactively uh, make sure that we get the picture of what happened early on in those early days at the end of 2019, get, get that picture right. Uh, and there's still a lot of a lot that's happening today, even though I think the information sharing is, is much more open than it was early on, uh, there's still a lot of stuff that we need to parse. Uh, and the second important caveat here is that I think learning sometimes suggests that everything China did was, was right and good, and, and hopefully other countries can, can, uh, can take it and apply it. Uh, but that's not 100% the case. China, of course, did a lot that was right. And, and if we walk through the timeline, I think it'll be pretty apparent the decisions that they made that, uh, that kept the coronavirus from really exploding across the entire country and really limited it to uh, one province and mostly one city. Uh, but there were also many, many missteps. And those are things that I think the world can also learn from. Most importantly, China should learn from because most of these uh, these, what I think those of us who are professional observers would call missteps, are uh, because there are systemic issues with the country because of governance, lack of free information flow, stuff like that. So those are the initial caveats. Um, but I think the timing of how China progressed from first case to now uh, has, been, has been fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and, and so we know now that in, in Hubei province, They've lifted, officially lifted the two-month lockdown. Um, and, and are you getting the sense, do you feel like this is the right 
decision to make at this moment? I, I, I don't think I'm the right person to, to say whether or not it's the right decision, but it certainly this, is, this has been um, a progression of decisions, and I think that they've been sitting on decision for quite some time. Uh, Wuhan itself, which was the, where the, the, uh, the pandemic started, uh, it was the first epicenter and the major epicenter. Uh, Wuhan is opening up in, on April 8th. That's right now the schedule. Uh, and this is really what we're in now is the third of three phases from the first discovery of the virus in Wuhan. Now, April 8th will be about 11 weeks after Wuhan, the city, got completely shut down and the Hubei province got shut down. Uh, and so for those who are you know, in, in a shelter, at home kind of situations right now in the United States uh, and, and wondering how long this is going to take, in, in Wuhan, they, they've, been, they've been locked down uh, for 11 weeks, and only now has the Chinese government decided they're ready to start letting people move freely around. And to your point earlier about some of the possible missteps in terms of uh, reporting, I mean, there's still reports now that we might not be getting uh, the an accurate number of cases that we're seeing in Wuhan or beyond that we're hearing some people say there are no new cases, other people saying that there actually are cases. Um, so are you, do you feel like there's, there is accurate spread of information um, about the current state of, of the virus in China right now? Generally, yes, uh, with the caveat that it is uh, based on the Chinese government's definition. And this is one of the problems right now that even the World Health Organization is struggling with, is that the definition of what is a confirmed case, what is an infection, is different from country to country. As an example, in China, uh, the, the folks that are tested positive but are asymptomatic, we understand now that they are not included. Since February 7th, they have not been included in the official numbers. So at the very least, on February 7th, they changed that definition and they're not included in those official numbers. And, and that could be uh, you know, another 50% on top of the numbers that we're seeing today. So this, what we've found, uh, our reporters have, have gone their hands on some classified uh, government documents and government data that suggests that a third of total um, actual positive tests are asymptomatic and therefore not included in official numbers. Now, this is not, I, I don't think that this is an example of the Chinese government trying to hide information. This is a definitions issue, which countries have been debating, and people are doing it in different ways. Um, but like I said, there really have been three very distinct phases. We are in the third phase that I would, I, I would call recovery and rehabilitation, rehabilitation being the rehabilitation of China's image. But the first part was discovery and a lot of denial. And then there was this two-and-a-half-month period uh, of response and containment. Uh, and that, I think, the response and containment part is what is most interesting to the rest of the world. And so maybe we can break some of that down, uh, you know, in thinking about China's response. Uh, you know, what, what were some of the specific things that you think uh, China did right, both as a nation, individuals in the country? Uh, what were some of the things that you saw that, that worked really well? Okay. Uh, so let, let me walk through the timeline. I want to try and get these dates right because the dates do matter. I think, for, again, for context, how many weeks it took from one step to another. Um, let me actually back up into that initial first phase, that discovery and denial phase. The first time we heard about the, the, uh, the, the coronavirus, uh, this mysterious uh, respiratory disease that looks somewhat like SARS was on December 30th. That was the day that there's a doctor that is now, his name is known all over the world for the unfortunate reason that he ended, ended up eventually dying, uh, named Li Wenliang. And Li Wenliang, Dr. Li, uh, posted to a private WeChat group on December 30th. These were some of his old classmates from med school. 
And he said, hey, I'm in Wuhan, I'm at the hospital. There is a SARS-like illness, SARS being the epidemic from 2002 to 2003. There's a SARS-like illness that is spreading through these hospitals in Wuhan. A private message, somebody forwarded it, and it went viral across the Chinese internet. The very next, that was the first time we actually heard about something uh, that was going, that what was going on in Wuhan. The very next day, December 31st, was the first time that any Chinese officials, and on that day, it happened to be the, uh, the actual provincial and the city officials, acknowledged that there were 27 people at that moment in time who had been diagnosed with this mysterious uh, pneumonia, and they reported the cases to the World Health Organization. That was also the day that Dr. Lee was reprimanded, officially reprimanded. So that was really the discovery, that the, the, uh, the end of the discovery and denial phase, because what we know now is that um, back to mid-December, several weeks before Dr. Lee wrote his blog post, the authorities had already been notified that a SARS-like pneumonia was showing up in Wuhan hospitals, and action had already started uh, down the chain of authority. They have now backdated, at least publicly backdated, the first case to December 1st. But actually, in their confidential and classified uh, government documents that, again, our journalists have seen, and we've published a story, uh, officially, in classified documents, they backdated the first uh, COVID-19 case all the way back to November 17th. That's the earliest example that they can find based on symptoms and based on retroactive diagnosis for a COVID-19 case. So in effect, there were several weeks before the acknowledgement of the World Health Organization that was, some, that was going on, and the first case with symptoms was actually identified about a month and a half before that notice to World Health Organization. Then the second phase, which really started, let's say, December 31st, when the acknowledgement happened, was response and then massive containment. Now, this phase, to be clear, still had some denial and a good amount of censorship happening within the country. So on January 1st, the World Health Organization started working with China on trying to identify the virus and trying to figure out course of action. It wasn't until several weeks later that Beijing, the central government, for the first time broke its silence, and that was on January 18th. Um, and actually, they broke the silence to deny that this was SARS, and in fact, to uh, quote-unquote defy rumors that were spreading around the Chinese internet. Uh, but there was a major date that happened two days afterwards, which was January 20th. Because for the first time, um, a member of the, the, the party and a senior government official who is now one of the central uh, gentlemen that is actually leading the, uh, the task force against COVID-19, his name is uh, Zhong Nansan, he's an epidemiologist, is one of the central figures during SARS 17 years ago. On January 20th, he visited Wuhan, and he admitted for the first time that human-to-human transmission was possible. Now, this is important, because prior to that, officials who had spoken up had said that human-to-human transmission was not likely, was not possible. Uh, and you know, previous to that, all of the cases, well, the majority of the cases were tied to this seafood and, uh, and wildlife marketplace that was in the city of Wuhan. But now, on January 20th, human-to-human transmission, it's possible, it's happening. And so, of course, the course of action, not only in China, but the course of action all over the world started to change. And three days after that, Wuhan was locked down. It was completely, I mean, it shocked the world that they could lock down that many people so quickly. Of course, now India yesterday announced that 1.3 billion people are being locked down, so we have another frame of reference now. Um, and then the end of this, this middle second phase, I think really came in March, uh, around March 10th, 
actually on March 10th, I should say, because uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited Wuhan. And these things in Chinese politics, uh, because everything is so well choreographed, matters a whole lot. The fact that Xi Jinping visited Wuhan signaled that the Chinese government believed the worst was over. The reality was that probably about 20 days before that, uh, the curve had already been flattened. Uh, so 20 days before that, probably around February 20, uh, 20th, the infection rate was around 75,000, 76,000. Uh, and it's effectively stayed within a couple of thousand since then. So on March 10th, Xi Jinping's visit to Wuhan kind of signaled the worst is over, and then they moved into the recovery and rehabilitation phase. Okay. So, I mean, if I'm hearing correctly, thank you, and thank you for sharing all of that. It, it sounds like, um, it, although that there was, uh, it was, there was a slow uh, period of getting the information out initially, eventually there was quick reaction from the Chinese government um, to uh, respond to this, lock folks down. Um, and then, and it seems like that had a real impact on flattening the curve um, in, in China. A real impact. In yeah. Um, and, Absolutely. I mean, and I'm, and yes, please go ahead, Gary. Yeah. No, the, the, the date of January 23rd was not by coincidence uh, because the Chinese New Year holiday started on January 24th, the very next day. And the, 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 the thing is with the Chinese New Year holiday is that it is every single year, it's the largest human migration that happens on Earth. About 400 million people travel during uh, about a 40-day period that would have started on January 24th. And that's 3 billion trips. That's just people traveling all over the country, 400 million people traveling. Um, now, Wuhan is one of the most important cities in China, although before this, I don't think anyone, not a lot of people uh, around the world knew the city of Wuhan, but it's extremely important. It is considered the most important city in the center of China, for many different reasons, but one of the key reasons is that it is one of the key transportation hubs of the country. So all of the major train lines, the high-speed train lines, the normal train lines, the trade lines, they all kind of converge on Wuhan. So you can imagine if 400 million people start moving around for Chinese New Year on January 24th, a huge number of them were going to go through Wuhan. And of course, Wuhan itself is an 11 million person city. The surrounding cities all added together, Hubei province has about 60 million people, and they were also largely going to travel. And so if January 23rd, they had not shut it down and people had started traveling, the likelihood would have been that this would have been really, really hard, uh, possibly, pr pr uh, likely impossible to contain. And even though they shut down before the Chinese New Year holiday started, we now also know that at least 5 million people actually left the surrounding areas and traveled. Uh, which is one of the reasons why it did spread a little bit across the country and then eventually spread to other parts of the world. And I'd like to come back to, to that as well, just thinking about the five million people who left and, and sort of where they, they landed today and how that affected things. But before we do that, I, I'm interested to even talk with you a little bit more about, you know, you, you mentioned this November date as one of the earliest cases uh, you, you discovered that was reported was in November. And that's something actually that I hadn't heard um, before. And I, I imagine that might be um, news to a lot of people um, hearing this. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, um, when you think about the missteps from China's perspective uh, in terms of what China did, uh, you know, there is, as you mentioned, suppression of information uh, is one mm -hmm. thing, one major criticism of how China handled this. Um, and hearing that maybe there was knowledge of something as early as November, if that might have played a role in, in how we were able to control and contain this a lot sooner. 
I do want to clarify. I think uh, from what we understand, officials were not notified about this until mid-December. It wasn't, um, so it was really a couple of weeks before between officials realizing that uh, there was a SARS-like pneumonia going around to when the first case was reported to the World Health Organization. It wasn't all the way back to November 17th. That was retroactively backdated, but that has not been made public by the government. Um, we published it because we've, we've seen the data uh, that actually backdates the first case. Um, uh, from a misdead point of view, again, it, it's, it's a couple of weeks compared to what happened in SARS, which was a long time of locking down on information. Uh, this was much shorter, the, the period of time that the government was in, in, in complete shutdown mode. Uh, but then after that, of course, there was still continued censorship uh, on the internet, especially within the Great Firewall of China um, for communications between Chinese citizens. And, you know, surprisingly to some, I think for a lot of China watchers, not so surprisingly, is that the government has over the course of uh, the central government over the course of the last several weeks, really, actually, I should say probably uh, the last two months, has started to change their tone and to some degree admit that uh, there needed to be better free flow of information. They've changed uh, the official narrative of a couple of different things, including this initial whistleblower, Dr. Lee, who unfortunately ended up passing away from, uh, from the virus. Uh, they, they actually, they, they now refer to him as a national hero. They have uh, officially removed the reprimand. Um, the Wuhan police have um, apologized to Dr. Lee's family and they have actually been, a couple of police, uh, policemen have been punished in Wuhan uh, for the way that they handled the situation. So there has definitely been an internal shift, uh, and there is a lot more sharing of, of data and information. I can tell you from Hong Kong's point of view, uh, without the open sharing of information between the authorities, uh, between Hong Kong and mainland China, I think Hong Kong's response would have been uh, much more different, and I think uh, Hong Kong would have suffered because of that. So that much more open sharing of information has benefited this city for sure. And uh, we have Chris here who has a question, I'm, I think, from the audience. Hey, Gary. Um, the online audience, um, uh, loving what you're saying. It's, it's so interesting. You're, you're giving us amazing new insights here. Um, just in the, the current situation where <clears throat> much of, the, um, you know, there have been these very few reports of new cases, um, how much does it feel like life is getting back to normal? Do people really believe that this, this problem has been successfully tackled elsewhere? Do you think, I think the sentiment in mainland China is that, yes, uh, in China, the problem has been tackled. And people are looking forward to going back to, to, to normal life. Uh, a lot of the other major cities, Shanghai, Beijing, are starting to get back to work. Many of the factories have now been reopened. Uh, the last stat that I saw was that 90% of the uh, the, the businesses that had been shut down are now reopened in China. So generally speaking, uh, life is getting back to normal. Wuhan and Hubei are really the last places that are still shut down, with Wuhan being the city that is shut down until April 8th. Hong Kong is a little bit different. Hong Kong has actually gone back into a second wave of uh, social isolation and distancing. Uh, a bunch of different companies included, as well as the Hong Kong government and the civil service, has now gone back to work from home. And it's because we're starting to see a, a second wave. But for us, honestly, it's the first time that we've had a spike on, of infections. And it's because of imported cases. It's because a lot of Hong Kong residents who left Hong Kong uh, prior to, well, actually, when the, the virus first came into the city, are now returning because, oddly enough, the places they escaped to 
are now more dangerous than, than Hong Kong. And as they're coming back, uh, a lot of them are actually bringing the virus back with them. And, uh, and so we're starting to see a spike. Before this week, the highest infection day that Hong Kong had during the first two months of this was, uh, was 10 infections in one day. Uh, now, the highest that we've seen in the last week was 48. So this is really the first spike that we're seeing. And so Hong Kong is returning back to a state of alertness, to a state of caution, and more and more people are holed up at home. Is it possible in mainland China that because of this redefinition that you spoke about, where if someone tests positive but they're not showing symptoms, that is not reported as a, as a case? That seems significant to me. Um, does, is that part of the explanation for why uh, new reports have gone nearly to, to zero? Uh, I, I don't know if that's the uh, if that's the answer to it, but I, I, I do actually think that uh, even with and remember these are these are folks that are tested. So the data that we have is that as the, these folks have been tested, the tests have come back positive, but have not been added to the official number of infections because they're asymptomatic. But they have still gone through the process uh, that is part of China's containment strategy, which has worked extraordinarily extraordinarily well. Which is first of all. Lots and lots of people have been tested. And then once, if there is a positive test return, regardless of whether or not it's symptomatic or asymptomatic, regardless of whether or not they're added to official numbers, uh, what happens next is that they are quarantined, they're isolated, and uh, contact tracing happens. Contact tracing is a key, key, key action. And so they go and figure out where this person has been moving, uh, where they've been, who they've been in contact with, and all those folks that they've been in contact with, close contact with, they get tested. And if they are, uh, come back with a, with a positive test, then they're also isolated and they go through the process again. So uh, China has not been testing people, finding that they're asymptomatic, and then just releasing them and letting them go home. That's, that's not the case. And, you know, I, I think to, to that point, too, um, Gary, what you mentioned about this trace testing and being able to um, figure out who people have been in contact with to figure out who may also have been infected. Um, you know, when you look at what's happening in other parts of the world, you hear, you know, in the United States where, where Chris and I are based right now, um, you were hearing that people who are experiencing symptoms, who have symptoms, cannot get tested. Um, you know, how does China's ability to test so many people affect the way that they can respond to this and control this virus? It really matters. Uh, without the significant testing and without the contact tracing that comes afterwards, uh, I don't think there's a way that China could have contained it the way that they did. It's the same thing here in Hong Kong. If we didn't have both of those uh, in, in as, as, uh, as minimum requirements in our health system, uh, Hong Kong could not have contained it. And this is actually the reason why uh, uh, South Korea is the only other country besides China that has managed to flatten the curve is because they aggressively tested. I think by far the highest per capita testing anywhere in the world, uh, as far as we know right now, and they aggressively did contact tracing. And because of that, even though uh, South Korea had this huge spike and we thought that it was going to get out of hand, they were able to suppress it, control it, and now they're in a much, much better place. Well, one thing you mentioned earlier that I'd love to talk about, too, is um, SARS and the impact that uh, going through that in 2002 and 2003 for China, other countries in Asia, and Hong Kong, um, you know, what, what effect did that have on, on everyone's preparedness uh, in that part of the world for the COVID-19 outbreak? It, it was significant. I think the institutional and social memory of SARS matters, matters a heck of a lot when you look at how 
China, Hong Kong, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, a lot of these uh, countries in Asia have dealt with uh, COVID-19. Let me use Hong Kong as an example because it's the one that I know uh, the most intimately, but a lot of what I'm about to say actually does apply to those other areas of, uh, of Asia. So for context, SARS, November 2002 to July 2003, very, very similar coronavirus to, uh, to COVID-19, I think. Uh, there's about an 80% uh, similarity to those two viruses. Um, the global infected number was a little over 8,774 deaths. So by percentage, uh, deadlier than uh, COVID-19 is, but far less infectious than COVID-19 is. Now, here's why it impacted Hong Kong so much and why uh, the memory is so deep. And actually, it tells you a lot about Hong Kong's uh, reaction to COVID-19. Of the 8,000 infected, 22% were here in the city of 7.5 million. And 40%, actually 39% of the deaths, 299 people died in Hong Kong. 39% of the global deaths happened in Hong Kong. And, and SARS did not start in Hong Kong. It was imported into Hong Kong from southern China. And so SARS, uh, again, deep, deep memory, but it was a massive turning point in the Hong Kong healthcare system and also the social practices of the city. Um, and and let, me, let me walk through some of that, that impact because you can actually still see it. Even before COVID-19, you see it every day. The healthcare system uh, was able to really very quickly... Uh, ramp up in capacity because of, of preparation post-SARS. So after SARS, uh, Hong Kong healthcare authorities started preparing for greater capacity, especially for infectious diseases. There were new health alert systems, warnings, and treatment protocols put in place. Uh, I can tell you that a lot of folks that were here before SARS will tell you that in Hong Kong hospitals, before SARS, it was actually rare to see even medical professionals wear face masks. And now surgical masks are ubiquitous, not only in hospitals, but across the entire city, uh, anytime, anywhere, it seems, especially right now. Um, new channels of communication and data and information exchange were opened up with mainland Chinese authorities, uh, and technology was implemented, including now a supercomputer uh, that actually does contact tracing uh, in Hong Kong. You could trace the existence of the supercomputer and this contact tracing ability back to changes that happened uh, post-SARS. On the social side, there was also a huge change. The first thing I have to talk about is, of course, uh, of course, masks. Now, I know that there is still not consensus everywhere in the world about whether or not masks actually help in this situation. I know that the World Health Organization, as well as governments like the U.S., as well as uh, Singapore, say that only um, medical personnel, as well as people who are actually sick and showing symptoms, need to be wearing masks. In Hong Kong, uh, everyone wears masks. And... The government, even though they flip-flopped a little bit uh, in this during this epidemic, uh, the general the uh, guidance is that everyone should be wearing masks. That started in SARS. Ninety uh, percent of Hong Kongers during SARS wore masks, and that habit actually, actually stayed with Hong Kongers. And so, generally speaking, even outside of the pandemic, when people are sick and coughing, you'll see them wear masks out in public. On top of that, uh, there was, it became systemic, or I should say systematic controls for hygiene in social and public spaces. So if you visit Hong Kong, uh, again, before all of this happened, you will have noticed that public spaces are constantly being disinfected. Uh, one good example that everyone notices is that when you go into an elevator in public spaces and buildings, they will either have one of two things, potentially both. They'll either have a sign that tells you how often the elevator buttons are disinfected, 
or there will be a plastic piece of sticky plastic that's plastic sheet over the buttons, so there are it effectively becomes a flat surface. When you eat out, Hong Kong is obviously famous for its dim sum, and one of the most famous things about Hong Kong dim sum are the dim sum carts, which are also very popular in New York Chinatown, as an example. Those dim sum carts. They pretty much went away after SARS, and so most dim sum restaurants that you'll go to in Hong Kong now, the vast majority of them, you have to order off of a menu. You don't have public cards going around because of hygiene issues. And most nice Chinese restaurants in Hong Kong now, you will get when you sit down, two pairs of chopsticks per person, and those two pairs of chopsticks are different colored because one is used to grab food from the center of the table to your plate, and the other one is for you to take the food and put it in your mouth. And honestly, there are hand sanitizers and hand washing notices literally everywhere, and, and this is just part of the social behavior after SARS. Safety protocols in offices. Everyone knows how to shut down an office and control traffic really well.、Um, most major offices have temperature check machines at the very least available, and then of course social distancing. People understand social distancing is important, and so the moment there was fear of what was happening across the border, naturally. People started social、uh, distancing activities, and、uh, self-quarantine became pretty pretty normal. So those are all the so- the social things, as well as the the、um, health system things that kind of changed. And because of that, Hong Kong was able to react really really fast. Not just the government, not just the health authorities, but the people of Hong Kong. And I think that's the most important part: is that the entire city, that the community reacted. And went into this mode where you wore masks, you washed your hands, you carried hand sanitizer, you stopped going to public places. But I'm curious. Then, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening at home and figuring out, well, how how can we apply some of those things here? And and from where you sit, and when you see what's going on in other parts of the world, where maybe people are struggling to make some of these these changes,、um, you know, what are some of the specific things you think、um, folks can adapt in their own cultures in their own countries? I think communication is a huge deal.、Um, if you talk to local Hong Kongers, they will likely opine that the communication from the Hong Kong government has not been top-notch.、Uh, but thankfully, there have been other authorities,、uh, and certainly even just person-to-person communication has been pretty strong.、Uh, a lot of corporates have done an incredible job in Hong Kong in communicating very transparently、uh, with their employees, and、uh, insurance companies have also been making available all sorts of.、Uh, uh, Webinars and, and materials, and made it actually quite easy for people to understand how to get tested, where to get tested, who to get tested,、uh, and, and so that communication I think has centralized to some degree the messaging in a city like Hong Kong. Everyone generally believes the same thing, and what they believe is generally true. Of course, there's still misinformation issues,、um, as there are everywhere. But I think, possibly also because of SARS,、uh, because over the course of the 17 years. A lot of the misinformation has now been vetted. Everyone knows what is true, so there is already sort of an internal radar,、uh, or at least alarm bell for things that seem to be wrong.、Um, so, so I think communication is, is, is really important from government, from corporates,、uh, anywhere in the world. And I, I think if there is a recommendation for health systems. I know getting tests is really difficult.、Um, one of the, the the things that has made Testing in China and Hong Kong certainly so effective is that there is point of care testing that still really doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist in volume in the U.S. And so they have to save these tests, and only a certain number of people can get tested. The triage system then becomes overflowing,、uh, whereas here, generally speaking, everyone can get tested. And then, of course, the contact tracing 
everyone knows that if somebody that you've been in contact with tests positive, you're going to be called in by the hospital authorities, and you're going to be tested. And, uh, and then if you're positive, everyone you've been in contact with for the last two weeks will also be called in. And people don't really see it as, as, um, as an annoyance. It's just what needs to be done. Uh, and I think because of that, again, um, the containment has been effective. Great. And we have a question from Chris here. Yeah, Gary, it actually builds on the point you just made. Like, people are puzzled online. How is it that China avoided the explosion of cases in big cities like Beijing, Shanghai, where people were coming there from Wuhan? How on earth did some of those cases not explode? Was it just down to really diligent contact tracing? I think it was a combination of things. First of all, the shutdown of uh, Hubei province certainly um, helped. Uh, and then the major cities actually went into isolation at, at, and quarantine as well. Um, it, remember, it was Chinese New Year, so offices were, there was no one working that week. And so everyone just went home. And generally speaking, in most major cities, they locked their doors and they didn't leave. Now, China is very prepared for this because the technology stack in China, including consumer-side services, make it really easy to lock your doors and get everything delivered to you. This is infrastructure and this is a consumer behavior that is already ingrained, in, especially in major cities across China. So people just went home. Uh, there was also a stigma issue, um, which is unfortunate for people from Hubei and especially from Wuhan. Uh, but there are plenty of stories in the other major Chinese cities where anyone coming from Hubei or with any connection to Wuhan were ostracized during those early days, um, especially after the Wuhan lockdown. Um, and, uh, and so folks that might have been, in fact, carrying the virus uh, because they were from the epicenter, they were either self-quarantined or they were forcibly quarantined because no one was going to spend time with them anyway. So I think for a lot of those reasons, some of them social, some of them um, systemic, uh, they, they, they made it so that, that there was much less person-to-person con -person contact, especially after the authorities admitted that human-to-human -human transmission was possible. Hospitals here in New York, there are warnings that they're about to get overwhelmed. Um, what can we learn from what happened in Wuhan? Like some of the scenes from there were horrifying, but there were amazing yeah. stories as well. What, what, what should we learn from what happened there? Well, it started off horrifying. So in the early days when uh, post-lockdown, uh, all the stories coming out of Wuhan, and we had, uh, we had journalists that were there right before the lockdown. They got out about three hours before the lockdown happened. And we had people that ended up having to be, to be quarantined because they were stuck in uh, Hubei, as well as a lot of citizen journalists that were documenting what was going on. And those images, like you said, Chris, were horrifying. There were uh, videos of showing people literally laying on the ground. Some were just so sick they couldn't move. Others had already died, and they were just covered with plastic sheets. There were nurses and doctors that were just crying in front of the camera, begging for help. And, and so I think it's important to understand that China's healthcare system did not just immediately become effective, and certainly not in Wuhan. There was not that much information. People didn't know what they were dealing with. Uh, certainly, the, the, the authorities were trying to help, I think, at that moment. But again, the information flow was not that free. Um, and during lockdown, people were screaming off of their balconies because they, they, couldn't, they, they you know, couldn't get food. They, you know, they couldn't even go to the hospital because the public transportation systems got locked down. And, Remember, this is not, Wuhan is not a, not a city like New York where most of New York is walkable. If you, for people who don't have cars, and many, many of the Wuhan residents don't have cars, if the buses are locked down, 
then they might have to walk three, four hours to get to a hospital.、Uh, maybe not that long, but they have to walk a long way to get to a hospital. And so a lot of people were just stuck at home, and they were unable to initially get、uh, any diagnosis or any healthcare. And so it was a disaster. But then the capacity actually ramped up. The triage system became extremely effective.、Uh, I think most people have heard now that there were two massive hospitals with thousands of beds of capacity that were built within ten days.、Um, and th- this is this is true. They were they came out of nowhere. They were literally just parking lots or flat ground. And two major housing uh, uh, hospital units were built up. To be clear, also those were the triage us-、uh, units for、um, for those who have very mild symptoms. But that's really important. Being able to get people with mild symptoms out of the major hospital systems, so that they're not taking up the resources of nurses and doctors, they're not taking up the diagnostic equipment for the second confirmation tests,、um, and also, especially, they're not taking up isolation wards and ventilators. And so the moment people started being moved out, the mild symptoms, the ones that were going to survive, and they just really needed to、uh, be separate from family and have some antiviral medication. Once they were moved out into these new hospitals, the main hospitals in Wuhan and across Hubei could deal with、uh, the primary patients, especially those that are critical of the overall tested population, and do their best to try and save them、uh, and make sure that they're not they're not highly infectious. Um, at the same time, I think that the health authorities in China, especially the nurses and the doctors, did a very good job of also protecting themselves. So there have been far fewer, by percentage, infections and deaths of medical staff than there were during SARS. I mean, to respond that effectively took a kind of top-down drive, plus a willingness of a lot of people to. Risk their own well-being in a way for their perception of, of what they had to do for the public good. I mean, you, you're well aware of the cultural differences between、um, China, Hong Kong, and, and, and the West. Do you, how do you rate the chances of, say, the U.S.、Um, res- responding effectively should things really explode here, as they seem like they may be about to? In the healthcare system side, I have every confidence that、uh, the U.S. healthcare system is going to be able to respond well.、Uh, I have many, many friends who are medical professionals in the United States, and、uh, they are raising their hands and volunteering and, and going to hospitals to see where they can help.、Uh, so I have full trust in the system and the people that man those systems. Our healthcare capacity in the United States is also significantly greater doctors per capita than in China,、uh, and because of the fact that. Also, our healthcare system is not just reliant on hospitals, but there are primary care physicians scattered all over the country. As long as the testing capacity and testing kits are available across the country,、uh, general practitioners can actually administer those. And it certainly sounds like more and more、uh, med medtech startups in the U.S. are now trying to create these home kits so that people can start testing at home. That will help a lot. My hope is certainly that、um, the, 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 the citizens of the U.S. Uh, that people are going to take this very, very seriously and realize、uh, that doesn't matter that you may not feel sick. It doesn't matter that you think you are young and you're not、uh, that you're not prone to, to, to you know, catching this virus, or that you're not in that you shouldn't you, know, you may not be fearful of uh, of uh, dire consequences and death.、Uh, take it seriously and and stay home、uh, and, and don't go to public spaces and don't. Be a carrier because we now know that asymptomatic folks can be carriers, and there is a possibility that you can be infectious、um, as an asymptomatic、uh, asymptomatic carrier. 
So um, yeah, on the cultural side, I, I, don't, I, think, I don't think it's really cultural. I would say that it's because of the impact of SARS. It's because of the social memory of SARS uh, that has meant people are a little bit more selfless and have just said, okay, I will stay home because I might have come in contact. Yeah, weirdly, SARS seems to have acted as its own kind of vaccine. It sort of just prepped the, the system enough for people to be ready. Yeah, social vaccine, amazing. Back to you, Whitney. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Chris. I mean, and, I, and so I think it's interesting too, Gary, to hear you talk about some of the reactions in Wilson Wuhan and some of the, the stories that you, you've heard, especially running the South China Morning Post and running a news organization um, in, in this out, during this outbreak. Um, you know, what are some of the, first, what is that like to run a news organization to report during an, this outbreak? Well, running a news organization in, uh, in a moment like this, so close to the initial epicenter and where the outbreak started, is complicated. Uh, we, we're lucky, we're very, very lucky that uh, most of our senior editors, and certainly the most senior editors, our editor-in-chief, our mass head leadership, they were all journalists and they were reporters during SARS. So there's a lot of pattern recognition in our newsroom. Which meant the moment that we got the first uh, sort of the first stories coming out of China starting on December 30th, people already raising their hands in the newsroom saying, hey, we got to report uh, about this like if it's going to be the next SARS. There's a, very, there's a high likelihood that this is it. And uh, we did send people to Wuhan early on in January. Um, like I said, we also had reporters there right before the lockdown. After the lockdown, we were lucky enough to pull uh, all of them out of Wuhan. Uh, but we actually did change very quickly the way that we report, uh, partially to make sure we got the story right, to dig deeper in the places that we, we knew we had to dig deeper, but also to protect our journalists and employees. So one of the things that we did do, and maybe other news organizations uh, would disagree with our decision, was, uh, was I think in, in late January or early February, even in Hong Kong, uh, we said to our journalists, you are not to go into hospital. So no more in-hospital reporting. Uh, because they were, you know, it, it was, we knew that it was highly infectious. Uh, we were worried that they were going to become um, you know, points of spread. And we just wanted to protect our employees and our company. So we did that. We also had a business con uh, continuity plan, which meant that at the drop of a dime, we could shut down the entire office and still operate this global news business. Some of the most interesting stories we've covered is actually how technology has played a huge role in China during uh, this epidemic because it frankly has changed the way that diagnostics work, it changed the way that containment work, it certainly has, uh, has changed the way that consumer life works, uh, and of course, there's been a lot of instances of really interesting censorship, but also, more interestingly, how the Chinese netizens have fought that censorship and reacted to that censorship, and I do think that there's quite a lot of lasting impacts that are likely to happen because of um, technology deployment during this time. And so I, I think in talking about those, some of those lasting impacts, now that you uh, as a country are sort of emerging uh, from this and coming on into a, a different stage uh, with this outbreak, what are some of the, of the changes you're seeing to, to daily life, both as society and maybe things that you're hearing that individuals are experiencing um, as a result of this? Yeah, I, I think uh, probably the two most interesting changes, actually, I should say three. Uh, the first one is, uh, is, is on education. Now, schools have been shut down across China for quite some time now. And again, this might be, feel a little bit uh, stereotypical uh, or a caricature of China, but education is extremely important to the country and extremely important to citizens. And we're actually just about to come up to the national exams, um, which you know, the students work 18 years for. 
And so online education very, very quickly moved online. And part of that move online was that uh, courses had to be and, and classes had to be recorded, which means that now there's this huge repository uh, of recorded classes. That means potential democratization of education material and significantly lowered costs. To get this type of uh, coursework from the top tier schools, whether it's high schools, universities, or primary schools, to the entire country. Now, whether or not China, China activates on it, we're still not sure, but the potential is there. The second major shift is really on distributed workforce. The idea of working remotely, um, it, it office work remotely, is not much of a concept in China uh, and across most of Asia, certainly far less than in the United States. Uh, and you know, I'm from the U.S. tech industry, so it was pretty normal. Um, it, it's pretty normal in the U.S. tech industry even before this, and China much less so. But because of the lockdowns, not only in Hubei, but uh, across China, this has become much more uh, normal. And people are kind of falling into a different rhythm of work. And most importantly, uh, this has given rise to a whole new set of teleconferencing companies in China because most of the teleconferencing companies that we know of in the West, uh, whether it's the Cisco systems, Google Hangouts, Zoom that everyone uses, Blue Jeans, Slack video, they're not available in China. They don't work in China. Uh, there is this mirror internet in China behind the Great Firewall. And so there's a whole new set of uh, teleconferencing systems that were used but were not really commonplace, certainly not for distributed workforce. And now suddenly over the last few months, there are. So it'll be interesting to see how those companies and those services develop and whether or not the workplace changes in China. Uh, and then finally, the third thing that is really interesting is um, that there was a huge internet response to uh, this censorship issue in China over the course of the last uh, two months. It especially exploded after this whistleblower, Dr. Li, died on February 7th. Uh, all over the Chinese internet, hashtags like, we want freedom of speech, uh, national hero Dr. Li, things like that just exploded everywhere. And um, there have been, and actually the, the Chinese government has had to respond. I think uh, for observers, a lot of observers believe that China, Chinese government's change of narrative about Dr. Li uh, was largely driven by this reaction from, the, uh, from its citizens across the internet. There have been extremely creative examples of people getting around censorship. Uh, I think China is quite famous for using emojis to get around text censorship. Uh, I think most people also know that the, the primary messaging app that the Chinese internet users use called WeChat, it is heavily censored. It's not just text that's censored, uh, images are censored, uh, really effectively, individual conversations are censored. And so um, when there are specific articles or specific uh, posts that are about what's happening with the virus that people want to share, uh, and the government thinks that it is detrimental to whatever, they will censor it and it will be you know, completely and, and, uh, and very effectively removed. But uh, this time around, Chinese citizens used emojis again. They translated these, uh, these posts into ancient Chinese texts that, uh, that the, uh, the censoring machines couldn't pick up yet. They actually translated one version of this post to, uh, into Tolkien's Elvish language. I don't even know the name of that language. They translated into that, and the AI couldn't pick it up. And then finally, I think one of my favorite versions of this was they used the Star Wars intro, the, you know, the, the, the angle text scrolling. It became a video, and they had the entire post about what was going on in Wuhan in that format, and that went all over the internet. 
So I, I do think that there is going to be an increased call. Academics now are speaking up about freedom of speech. So there's going to be this increased volume of, uh, of, of netizens calling for uh, freedom of speech. It'll be very, very interesting to watch how the authorities in China deal with that. Great. And, and Chris, you have a question? Um, yeah, it sort of picks up on that about the, you know, the, the stories that could come out of this. I mean, there, there are definitely optimistic stories that people are feeling that, um, you know, this could lead to more free speech of a certain kind in, in China, certain things you can't suppress. Um, maybe in the, in the US, it might lead to the government taking scientific predictions more seriously. Not clear that's happening yet. Um, and there's, and there's hope that, um, this whole thing, because it's a common enemy for the world, will actually bring the world together in some ways. But I'm curious how you think about this. Like, President Trump has started to referring to this as the Chinese virus. I'm curious how that's being received in China and, um, and how people are, are feeling on this issue. Has it, do you think it's, um, increased sympathy for other countries or actually dialed up animosity? Well, it's certainly not being received well across China. I think one, one thing that is still um, uh, really undercovered is, is the, 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 uh, the intensity of rising nationalism um, at the grassroots level across China over the last several years. Um, and they're very protective of their country and their people and their history. Uh, and President Trump's uh, comments and the fact that so much of the U.S. government is now referring to this as the Chinese virus uh, is, is not received well. You know, my fear, of course, is that even prior to the, the, the virus, the U.S.-China conflict was escalating uh, beyond anything that I think most of us as observers want to see. Trade, tech, military, ideology. And now we can add information conflict and, uh, and health conflict, um, health, health tech conflict especially, to the list. Uh, of course, uh, the, the hope is that, that these heightened tensions um, will actually dissipate and that you know, the two countries can actually, at this moment in time, choose to go down one of two paths, either one that further damages the relationship or one that actually shows what the possibilities are of the two largest economies in the world, the two most powerful countries in the world, actually cooperate. And you know, this week, um, Thursday, is, is the G20 conversations that are going to happen remotely. Um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, U.S. and China actually coordinate, cooperate, how they communicate during those, those talks. I think people want to know how how you think this will play out. You've got you've got a very special seat there, you know, looking at all parts of the world in it. What's your what's your take on how this plays out? I desperately want to be an optimist, Chris, um, but I think that everything we see, especially the data, it shows that it is going to get far worse that, uh, before it gets better. And uh, I'm very fearful for what's going on in the United States. It's because of the amount of data we have um, across all these different countries, you can layer, very clearly layer countries and the, the way that the pandemic has been spreading on top of one another. And we know that the U.S. is uh, a week and a half, maybe two weeks behind Italy, and we know what's happening, in, what happened in Italy and what's going on in Spain. And the U.S. is, uh, is catching up on that spike, and uh, it's going to come much faster, and it's going to be much higher than I think most people originally believed or hoped for. So it, it will get worse. Um, so the hope is that, you know, it's, again, this is going to be the optimistic side of me, that the nations will come together, 
uh, that those in charge of governments will make the drastic necessary moves um, and we will be able to, uh, to, to come out on the other side faster than, than it looks right now. Uh, remember, when, when China went to shutdown on January 23rd, there were only 830 confirmed cases. Uh, and even if those numbers are not exactly accurate, it's nowhere near uh, the confirmed cases that we have in the U.S. right now, that we see in the U.S. Uh, so that, that is something to be very, very concerned about. At 830, they shut down. And even after the shutdown, two weeks later, the cases had grown to 35,000. Two weeks after that, it was at, uh, at 75,000. So um, at this point, it is late in the U.S. Uh, but we, you know, the, the, it can still be fixed. Uh, and I think most, most experts that we talk to believe that it can be fixed with, uh, with fast and decisive action. Yeah, people struggle with understanding the power of exponential growth, and a number can seem smallish today. But uh, if you believe the science, um, yeah, you, you you have to act. Gary, look, I, I hope somehow you will convey to whoever you can convey that regardless of what some people might say in government or elsewhere, there are there are millions, there are tens of millions, there are probably hundreds of millions of people in the U.S on both right and left, who are amazed by what China, what happened in China. You know, yes, missteps early on, whatever, but they're amazed. I mean, it's, it's, you've really, you know, both the Chinese government, the Hong Kong government, several Asian governments, um, Singapore, South Korea, have mm -hmm. shown a, a, a astonishingly wise and disciplined action against this thing. And, um, and we're grateful. Like, we, we feel there's much... We can learn from you, and um, uh, so people, most people want this to be a time of bringing the world together. I, I, I genuinely believe that. There's maybe the optimistic part of me believing it, but uh, I believe in it. It's partly what these conversations are for, to try and make those kinds of connections. So we want to keep in touch. You've got an amazing seat there, and I, 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 I have loved listening to every word you've said today here. It's just I've learned so much from you, so thank you for that. That was a great conversation. Thank you for and, your insight. And thank you to our whole um, online audience. I mean, this is a journey. Every, you know, every day we're learning something new. And just in case anyone out there is feeling a little bit powerless and, and afraid or, you know, at the situation, I mean, the one thing that everyone can do right now, I think, is we can reach out to the people we can know. We can encourage each of us to be our, our best selves. In, in this moment. Like, I really think it's, it's what the world's going to need. When people are angry and fearful, we can turn into nasty people. Um, and, and, but when we're... When we realise how much we need each other and are willing to just reach out and, and share stories of hope and, and share what we're feeling and share possibilities, we can, we can really impact each other. And I, I see so many incredible instances of that from around the world, whether it's Italians singing to each other joyfully from each other's balconies or these sort of tales of heroism that some of our health workers are, have been engaged in all, all around the world. There's going to need to be uh, a lot more of that. Um, and, but honestly, every single person can play a part in how they are online, how, what they share, um, how they react. So I don't want to be overly embarrassingly kumbaya, but I, I kind of think we, we need that spirit right now a little bit. We need each other 
And um, Ted's going to try and play that role a bit. So if you hate that, maybe you don't need to be here. But I, I hope, I hope you don't hate that. I hope you like that and will be part of it. Uh, Whitney, it's so fun co-hosting hosting these. Thanks to the rest of the amazing TED team who are in the, everyone in our individual homes. They're sort of racing around trying to make this stuff work. Technically, we're learning a bit each day, I hope. Uh, thanks so much for being part of this. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. We'll see you all back here tomorrow. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash TED Talks. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED Talks. Odoo, modern management made simple.